Folks, I'd like to introduce you to David Gluckman, who uh, has invented and created a few things that are quite interesting. Uh, the book is called A Ship Will Never Sell. It will be in the library. Um, and if you want to buy a copy for your own uh, sake, um, it comes with a complimentary case of Bailey's Irish Cream. Only today, though. In your dreams. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me to this um, one of the few parts of Ireland I've not been to before. Anyway, for the last I suppose, nearest damn it, 50 years, I've woken up almost every day thinking, how the hell am I going to solve a problem of one kind or another? And it's taken me on some very interesting adventures. Um, what I'm going to do is take you through a whole series of brands that I was involved with and try and show you what worked and also what didn't work, because quite a few of the examples I'm showing you um, failed. Okay, can we... Uh, for some reason, I spent an awful lot of my life in Ireland. Um, it all started, okay, uh, with this gentleman. Anybody know who he is? Anybody recognise him? No? Not a single person. He was called A.J.F. O'Reilly, and he um, was a famous Irish rugby player who I saw in South Africa back in 1955. He also became one of the most prominent business people in Ireland. I think, I think he owned the Irish Independent and a few other things. When I met him, he was about 28 years old, and he was the general manager of the Irish Dairy Produce Marketing Board, otherwise known as Unboard Banya. And O'Reilly came to an ad agency where I was working and asked us to brand Irish butter, which prior to that period had been unbranded, therefore was blended in bulk butter, which was, uh, didn't command a very high price. O'Reilly said, we're going to turn Irish butter into a brand, up the price, make the farmers happy, uh, do things for the Irish economy. And as working in an ad agency, that's one of the things we did. Okay? The brand you may know, it's Kerrygold. It's pretty famous. I was a pretty junior um, functionary in all this, so I'm not here saying I invented Kerrygold. I didn't. I was part of the team that did it and made a small contribution. But it, it stuck with me. It was probably the most exciting uh, thing I ever did in my advertising career. But when I was 30, I decided I wanted to change tack completely and do something completely different, something more creative than what I was doing at the time. So I managed to persuade my boss to set up a department that would help companies to develop new products. Absolutely no idea how to go about this, but I thought it would be a very interesting new career. And... Um, Okay, uh, so we, we fast forward 10 years later now after Kerry Gold. And I was given a brief by a drinks company to produce a new Irish drink for export. The government had introduced um, a scheme whereby any uh, brands exported from Ireland would be given a 10 year tax holiday. Very attractive opportunity. But that was as far as the brief went. Nowadays, if you get a brief, you get great big packs of um, information, whiteboards, everything else. In this case, there were no constraints, no parameters, no nothing. They just said, we want a drink, do something. And I remember waking up on a Monday morning 
in the office. My partner arrived, and I said, what are we going to do about this bloody Irish brief? And uh, he was a great guy switching off for the weekend, so he said, what Irish brief? Anyway, I said, is there anything in my Kerrygold background that we could bring to bear to create a new drink? And he said, well, what happens if we mix cream and Irish whiskey? So I said, only one way to find out. And off we went down to the local supermarket, bought some cream, bought a quarter bottle of Irish whiskey, because times were hard, and um, tasted it. Tasted disgusting. We had to do something. So what we did was uh, we added some Cadbury's drinking chocolate. We also added some uh, sugar, mixed it up, tasted really good. So I called up the client, uh, well, the London office, which is the head office, and said, we've got something really interesting for you. Can I come around and see you? And he said, sure. So I jumped in a cab, went to his office, took out this uh, bottle, a bit like this, recycled, and um, gave him the thing to try. And he said, that's great. I think we should do it. And that's as simple as it, uh, that's as far as it went. It is a very, very simple idea. And I think one of the points I'd like to make there is the virtue of being ignorant. At the time, we had no idea about how to distill and produce um, alcoholic drinks. So we came up with something which um, we didn't know whether it could be made or not. And I think that was a huge virtue. Anyway, the short answer was that was, that was the very first pack that ever produced for Bailey's Irish Cream. And um, what we decided to do then was to uh, bring the brand to life. So we created the package. We had the labels printed and embossed. We made it look as real as possible. And when we got on a plane, I went to Dublin to see the, uh, the local company, which was called Gilby's of Ireland. I'd never met these people before in my life. And we presented them with something which was completely um, unexpected, almost unheard of. And um, to my surprise and delight, they absolutely loved the idea. They made one change. You can see there it says Irish cream chocolate liqueur. They took chocolate off, which was a very important uh, thing as far as the brand was concerned. Because once they started to mess with it, they were claiming ownership. And that was very important. So... Um, that was the next thing. How did we come up with the name? Dealing with O'Reilly, he said, if you ever use a family, an Irish family name in producing a brand, uh, don't use a typically Irish name. In other words, he was saying, don't call it O'Reilly's Irish Cream. He said it sounded whimsical, his terms, I think. So uh, that's, uh, the next slide shows you how we came up with the name. If you look in the, this corner here, it says Bailey's, and there's an office above it, which is our office in Soho in London. I looked at the name of the restaurant, which was not in any way Irish, and thought, that's exactly what O'Reilly was talking about. So we called it Bailey's, and much to our delight, nobody wanted to change it. So that was, um, there's another slide, I think. That was, that's roughly how Bailey's looks today. Well, it's my favorite uh, presentation of the package. Okay, on to the next one, which is in 10 years after that, 
This was the mid-80s, and by this time, the Baileys was uh, one of the foremost marketing academies in, in Ireland. And uh, we were summoned across to Dublin to get a brief. Next slide, please. Everybody know that place? That's probably my... No, it's not my phone. Uh, oh, it might be. Anyway, don't worry. We was, uh, Bewley's decided to launch a coffee cream liqueur, and the Bailey's people got very active about this and said, OK, uh, we can't let them get away with it. We've got to compete. So we were invited to go to Dublin. This is about Christmas time almost, to get a brief. Very important. So we showed up at the hotel next to the airport at, um, uh, in Dublin. And before we... Um, but before I went to the, to the meeting, I just stopped by to get a box of matches from the bar. And they were pulling a pint of Guinness, and this was 9 o'clock in the morning, and it just looked so absolutely... So, is that something I said? <laughs> uh, well, thanks, the timing was perfect. <laughs> I got my best laugh of the day. Anyway, so I'm in, this, I'm in this pub buying a box of matches at 9 o'clock in the morning, and they're pulling this pint of Guinness, which just looked amazing. It looked like a kind of giant Baileys turning into this black and white stuff. And um, I took that idea with me to the meeting and walked into a room. There were about six people from the Irish company, and um, there was a pile of whiteboards and document about as thick as that book, with briefing material. And uh, I said to the chief guy there, I said, would you mind very much if I ordered a pint of Guinness? He said, what do you mean? He said, 10 o'clock in the morning. I know we're a drinks company, but we don't encourage that kind of irresponsible drinking. I said, look, I had a terrible night last night. Please, please let me have a pint of Guinness. So um, I said, okay. So... um, the guy downstairs brought up a pint of Guinness, and I said, um, here's your coffee cream liqueur. How would you like a coffee cream liqueur where you drank the coffee, which is the dark part, through the cream, the white part? And he said, that's great. Let's do it. No whiteboards, no briefing material, nothing. And that brand became known as, well, that's the Guinness pint. Sorry, I was... Uh, became Sheridan's, which is, uh, many of you may know it, I think. Lesson from that was that I was presenting to the CEO, the key guy. He was able to make the decision. There was no question of middle management having to go away and do lots of research and look at lots of options and everything else. He made the decision there and then, and we went ahead and did it. I think the only failing with Sheridan's for me is that the gimmick became more important than the product. And I think that management thought it was wonderful. You know, we've got this thing where you've got two holes and two bottles joined together, and you pour it out, and it becomes like Guinness. And they got very excited about it. But I, think, I think they lost sight of the fact that the product was, was important. I don't think the Sheridan's product has ever been as good as what we had in our minds at the time. Okay, so th- those are two successful ideas. Let's get to something that didn't work, but uh, was no less interesting.
and that was in the middle 80s. Bacardi was the biggest selling uh, drink in the world, the spirit brand in the world. And uh, the company said, I think we should try and take on Bacardi head on. And I was given the project. And it was a, quite a tough one, really, because, um, you know, it was a big, very successful brand. And this is the way it worked. I'll introduce this. Um, most of the work in getting to a conclusion consisted of reading, looking at advertisements, um, just boning up on the, on the category, tasting rum, just to see what it tasted like. And one of the conclusions was that you can't really attack a very big brand like Bacardi head-on in the same way as you can't attack Coke head-on. You've got to take a piece of it and slice it off and compete with that, and that's, uh, that's the important thing. And one of the things I concluded about um, Bacardi was that it was very unisex. If anything, it was probably more feminine than it was masculine. It was low strength. It was 38% alcohol. It was um, quite sweet and drunk with Coke, very sweet, as it is now. So I thought, why don't we look at the possibility of creating a more masculine white rum? And also, I wanted to get away from... Bacardi had this reputation for... Uh, tropical beaches and palm trees and sunshine and everything else. So uh, that kind of summed it up to an extent. So I looked around the world. I literally took a globe and went around the world looking for the tropics to find a country that wasn't anything like Bacardi land. And uh, this is what I came up with. It was uh, Australia. And I'll say that this is the time that Crocodile Dundee, I guess none of you were born when Crocodile Dundee first came out, but Crocodile Dundee established that great myth of the macho Australian who could wrestle crocodiles with his bare hands. It was very masculine imagery, and um, we thought, okay, we'll produce a more masculine white rum. So what we did was we, first of all, um, increased the strength from 38 to 43. We reduced the sweetness so it became stronger, drier. And instead of making it from molasses, which is this sort of heavy, syrupy stuff, we made it from freshly pressed cane juice. And here's the brand that um, emerged. Couldn't everybody see it? We called it Stubbs and... Um, I was very pleased and proud of the brand, and we presented it, and um, it actually went onto the market in the UK and in the US. But it failed for two very obvious reasons, in hindsight. First of all, we never engaged the Australian company in the development of the brand. So as soon as we went to them with this, with this fait accompli, they looked at us and said, never work in our market. And it never did. They never allowed it to work in their market. And secondly, we never engaged the Americans who would be the prime target market for the brand. So we made two really stupid um, political errors. And uh, for Stubbs, the music died. Okay, next one. Here's another one. It's another massive brand and probably much more familiar to you. Has anybody not tried Red Bull? 
Okay. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe how successful Red Bull was. I really couldn't. I mean, I thought, it, to me, it was the most sickening, awful-tasting product I'd ever come across in my life. And yet it was mega. And somebody said, how can we take on Red Bull? Now, learning from the Bacardi, um, the decision was don't go after all of Red Bull. Go after part of Red Bull. In other words, chip it away. In the same way as we halved the Bacardi audience to compete on the masculine side. Here we, um, we found something different. And um, this next slide, please. That's Red Bull. It's, it gives you energy. It enables you to work all day and play all night. It's great with vodka, and it's, it's an incredibly successful drink. How do you compete with it? Well, like that. What Red Bull does is offers overall energy. It refreshes parts that other brands don't reach. And we decided to just focus on mental energy. So I developed this drink called IQ. I found something on the internet called Nootropics, which is uh, these are sort of smart drugs that stimulate the kind of thing that students might take around about exam time to keep you awake. I know I did. And uh, I just loved that brand. We called it the Think Drink. It was called IQ. It was, the design was developed about five years before the Minions, so it wasn't a rip-off. I loved the design. I loved the, the use of metallic yellow, which was so, so distinctive and different. And um, that one failed for another reason. I then went to present it to the company, and the first response I got from the company, and I got very passionate presenting this thing, saying this is going to change your lives, etc., and it solves the brief perfectly. Um, the question was, where are the other ideas? And I said, what do you mean? So and they said, well, where are the alternatives against which we can test this? And I said, there aren't any. I said, I haven't done alternatives since Bailey's, which was 27 years always gone for a single solution. And um, it just sank without trace. So if anybody out there wants to do IQ, it's, it's in the book and it's, uh, it's public. So help yourselves, please. I, I, that, I mean, that was one that never got onto the draw, drawing board, let alone off it. But it's a very important point, I think, and it's a very hard one to sell. If you're in any creative business, it's really easy to come up with six answers to a brief, but it's very difficult to come up with one. But I've tried throughout my career always to come up with a single solution, which is creating a huge rod for one's back, because you've got to go in and say, hey, this is it, and if you don't buy this, you're out of your, out of your heads. And I mean, I did this for nearly 50 years, and it, it, it seemed to work. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing. This is going back to what, in your case, would be the Napoleonic Wars. It was 1974. It was a three-day week in England. Industry was um, completely at a standstill. Everything was a disaster. And, and we were just setting up. Bailey's hadn't even... Uh, Bailey's had started, but had never become famous or successful. So what we did was um, we used to develop ideas and take them to companies in order to try and sell them. So we'd go to a company and say, 
let us help you develop this brand and, it'll, um, and you can pay us a, a, a fee. So here was the first idea. Okay. Now, I saw this on television in the U.S. And it was, what it said was that if you take a packet of baking soda and stick it in the fridge, it will prevent your milk from tasting of kippers, assuming you have milk and kippers uh, in the fridge at the same time. And it's baking soda. And I thought, well, that's a hell of a good idea because everybody owns a refrigerator. But why would you want to put a, a, a cardboard carton into your fridge? There must be a better way of doing it. Now, the guy who designed the Bailey's label was, uh, had office space in, in our place. And I went to him and said, look, um, I've got this idea. Can you do anything with it? And he came back a week later with this, which is a blue egg called Fridge Fresh. Anybody ever seen it, heard of it? You've seen it? I don't believe it. You have one at home. How amazing. And um, we developed uh, Fridge Fresh, which was, and instead of putting baking soda in, we put activated charcoal. Activated charcoal is very powerful stuff. It has enormous uh, surface area. Eight grams of activated charcoal has the equivalent surface area of two football pitches. So when you put the kipper into the fridge with milk, the odor spreads evenly across the entire surface so that um, the two football pitches take most of it and the eight cubic feet of the fridge take the rest. Um, we took it to about a dozen companies and tried to get them to take it on, but nobody would, so we did it ourselves. And I'm happy to say it helped pay um, for our mortgage. So that was Fridge Fresh. Okay, what have we got next? How to make something out of almost nothing. Well, this is very quick. We had, um, this was a whiskey. Um, oh, yeah, I've got it, I think. I've uh, given a brief. Most of the briefs that one had were, were to develop um, premium products, high-class, high-end premium products, because that's where the profit lay, but not always. And in this case, we were given a brief to come up with a cheap whiskey to compete with White Horse and Vat 69. They weren't in the premiership. They were in the next division down. And the constraints in the brief were quite considerable. One is you had to use a particular bottle shape, uh, the whiskey could be no more than um, three years and 15 minutes old. And um, the label shape had to be uh, this to fit the change parts. And um, I asked the question, I said, where are these products going to be sold? And they said, mainly in Spanish hypermarkets. So I said, okay, uh, let's do this then. You can't see it very well in this light, but I said, let's produce a bottle with a brilliant day-glow purple label so that when you go into a hypermarket in the middle of Spain, uh, you'll see the sea of metallic purple shining out at you, and you'll get noticed. So that was reducing everything down to one simple thing. Getting noticed was important. But what happened next was really fascinating because... Uh, the company then did research across Europe uh, with this product. 
And consumers came back and said, hang on a minute, whiskey doesn't come in a bottle with a purple label, which is the definition of innovation, I suppose. So they said, see, the idea will never work, and they, they killed it. But two guys from Thailand had seen the brand and come to the company and said, look, we beg you, beg you, beg you, please let us take that brand for the Thai market. It became brand leader in its price category. They both made millions. And um, I think the moral of the story is that the consumer is not as intelligent as we are. You know, people like to think that the default in a lot of modern marketing is that the consumer must make the final decision. They know what's best. I don't think that's true. I think that would have worked with a purple label across Europe had we done it. Anyway, next. Oh, um, one of the amazing things about ideas is, you know, how you, how you get the ideas. Sometimes, for, I mean, I once found a brand name for a beer on the back of a truck. It, it was, the beer became called Ganz, G-A-N-Z, and, and Ganz means complete in German. And this is just complete 24 bottles. And I thought, what a great name for a brand. So you've got to keep looking 24-7 for solutions to everything. And here's one which was a really difficult project. This was the 90s, and Absolute and Stolichnaya were uh, uh, setting the US vodka market on fire because they'd created a premium tier. And poor old Smirnoff here... Uh, was very much a, a depressed brand, more so in the US than in Ireland or in the UK. But we did a lot of work in Ireland, in, in, in the American market. And they came along and said, we want to produce a premium Smirnoff to compete with Absolute and Stolly. And my first thought was, they must be crazy. It's a bit like trying to get a, a Michelin star for a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. It's not an easy thing to do. So how on earth are we going to do this? Um, you know, you can't produce a... You can't be more authentic than Stolich Naya. And you can't be sexier, more attractive than, than Absolute. So what can you possibly do? And you're dealing with vodka. And the laws relating to vodka say uh, it has to be odorless, colourless and tasteless. So how on earth can you manage that? And then I got the clue from there. It was 1818 on the bottle. Now, you may not know this, but the, the still that's used to make vodka was invented by an Irishman called Aeneas Coffee in 1830. And the coffee still is quite famous. So that if he invented it in 1830, in 1818... Uh, the coffee still didn't exist. So vodka must therefore have been made in a pot still, which is different. So um, that gave me my idea. We would make pot still vodka from Smirnoff. But that's all very well. Pot still simply is uh, it's a statement of process. It's not a benefit as far as consumers are concerned. So... The idea that I had was that a pot still would produce a smoother vodka. Now, that's a word that had not been used in vodka prior to that time. So I, I set myself a task of um, 
producing a vodka that when you tasted it blind against Absolute and Stolichnaya, you would say, I definitely prefer that because it's smoother. And I had a technical guy in the back room and we did a few focus groups in New York. And at the beginning and the end of each focus group, I gave um, people two products to taste. And by the end of the four focus groups that we did, uh, eight out of ten people were saying, I like this one with the green dot rather than that one with the blue dot because it tastes smoother. So we had our product. So therefore, And then I actually told uh, consumers that this was Smirnoff and that was absolute. And I said, would you still buy it? And they said, definitely. And I said, why? And they said, because it was smoother. And so... Um, very simple solution, or very simple source of a solution, but it worked. I don't think the company felt as strongly about Smirnoff Black as we did. Can we have the next slide, please? Oh, that's, um, that's something I meant to tell you. That's a device that I developed in the 60s and used throughout my business career. And that's a fake magazine article. The food and drink magazine doesn't exist and nor did it appear on, on the 15th of October, 1992. But when you write something like that, you can bring a brand to life in, a, in a, I think, a very effective way. Because if you show somebody an ad, they'll think you're bragging, you're over, over-claiming what your brand is. If you use that, it's in the paper, it must be true. It has more veracity, it has more authority. And I used that for most of the new brands that I developed as the very first stage in the, in the process. Okay, we go to the next, next one, which is... Um, oh, sorry, just get back one. That's how Smirnoff appeared, as Smirnoff um, Black Label. Interesting little side story to that. The client, who was quite a smart guy, said, let's not give it a subsidiary name. Let's not call it anything. Let's consumers make up their minds what the brand should be called when they're in a bar. So I said, well, I'll have Smirnoff, oh, the black one. And it became Smirnoff Black. But five years later, they redesigned the pack and put the word black on it, which I thought was one of the dumbest things I'd ever seen. How are we doing for time? Good. Okay. Um, a few more. Okay. Uh, I keep going on about this, and I think it applies to every category in, in which you operate. Uh, it, it's product, product, product. Believe in product. I think every single um, brand that I ever developed had a product that was distinctive and was different. And here are a couple. That's called Tanqueray 10. And it's the only gin that's made with fresh botanicals, so juniper, coriander, and all the other stuff. And the reason for that is that uh, Tanqueray 10 was designed to attract people who didn't like gin. And to those of you who don't like gin and don't know it, it can be a very debatable taste. Uh, it's got a dirty, demanding taste. Here's another one, Ciroc Vodka, which I developed. It's the world's first vodka made from grapes, not grain. Um, sadly, I don't... Oh, one, okay, well, one more. Uh, one, one of the things, you spend a lifetime developing brands for other people, and there's always the tendency to say, well, what can you do for yourself? So after Diageo 
got rid of me. Um, I got together with a couple of partners and we talked a lot and then we decided that what we were going to do is to go right back to my basics and produce a brand to compete with Bailey's because we felt that Bailey's was one of the few liquor categories that had, uh, with Bailey's at the top, as a sort of mid-level brand and everything arranged below it, there was no premium uh, cream liqueur. So what we did was we said, okay, let's produce a brand that's nothing like Bailey's. Instead of being not short, fat, and brown, we're going to be tall, slim, and white. We were going to talk about our ingredients on the, on, on the bottle. So we would talk about the best uh, vanilla, the best cocoa, uh, single malt Irish whiskey, Belgian chocolate. So we would tell people what was in it. Nobody knows what's in Bailey's, really. And we'd make it look different. And um, here it is. Oh, that's Bailey's. And that's us. To any of you who've studied poetry at school, you'll, you'll recognise the, um, the poem. I was very proud of the brand in many, many ways because every tiny detail we looked at and tried to, to make it as strong as possible. So you can see it's got beautiful chilled. Most brands say serve well chilled or serve cold. This one says beautiful chilled. Uh, and instead of saying produce of Ireland, it says made only in Ireland, which again I think is a, is a much stronger point. Okay, another point. I, th I think that um, marketing is often tyrannized by market research, the need to prove that something um, works or doesn't work. And I've got some examples of brands. I just wrote a piece on LinkedIn recently Bailey's had three focus groups, all of which were negative. Uh, Aqualibra, which was a very popular brand in the 80s in the UK, didn't have a single piece of research done on its behalf. Purdy's, which is still around and may even be in Ireland, yes? No? Uh, no research. The Singleton, which I think is Diageo's most successful malt whiskey, had no research. And Tanqueray 10 went to market on two focus groups, so... That's uh, five focus groups in total. So don't believe everything a market research tells you. Okay. Um, so what worked? I think for me what worked was always looking for a single solution. Because when the solution emerged, I came out, I was totally convinced that this would solve the problem. And most times clients bought the idea. Second point is that after a few years of having other people research ideas, I always tested my own ideas. And I had no, there, there was no virtue in cheating. Uh, I would have been fired quite, 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 quite early on. I did my own market research. I never did beauty contests. I never went and asked consumers, which one of these packs designs do you like best? The red one or the blue one? Because consumers aren't experts. The designers are experts and they should know. Um, we should be smarter than consumers who, I made the point earlier, like what they know, but they really know what they like. But the final and perhaps most important point is that the real hero of ideas is not the person who has it, like me, it's the person who buys the idea. I think if you can understand that, you can go a long way. It's the people in companies who put their jobs 
and their careers and their pensions and their reputations on the line. They are the people who are most important. Um, and I think that if, if business schools could teach people how to buy ideas, I think uh, it's a very valuable and worthwhile skill. Okay? Uh, there's an old song which none of you have heard of, which is, if, if, if they asked me, I could write a book. And uh, they did, and, and I did, and that, that, that's the book. And um, it's called That Shit Will Never Sell, which was um, what happened when Bailey's was taken to a guy in New York. He was a hotshot in the drinks business, and he took one look at the pack, and he said, it reminds me of Vietnam uniforms, marine uniforms in Vietnam. And then he took one taste of the product, and he said, that shit will never sell. Um, and the, the chapter in, that, in the book ends with, uh, that turned out to be some good shit. But, um, <laughs> and in his case, I, mean, I think in, in his defense, he did take it on and make it into the biggest selling brand in, in, in its category in the US. But um, I was quite proud of my own ability to buy ideas because I decided before I really got stuck into the book that I would um, get somebody to design the cover because, you know, then everything else would have to live up to the cover. And I found a guy on the internet and I said, uh, how big's your company? And he said, me. I said, great, you're on. And I sent him a lot of stuff about the book and the title. And he came back with this, which I thought was absolutely amazing. And I bought it on the spot. It was a great piece of design. And um, the cover opened out. I think that's that. Next. Oh, yeah, if you want to buy the book, um, the best way to get it, for me anyway, is by, via the website, which is www.shitwillneversell.com. Uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, and that, I think, is the end of it. If there are any questions, uh, please feel free to ask. Thank you very much. Anybody got any questions? Yeah. How did you come up with, say, product managers and marketing managers and stuff when you were going in and obviously the stuff that you get? Avoided them like the plague. No, I think one of the key points was aiming as high as possible. Um, in other words, if you dealt with the MD or the CEO, then you had a chance of getting something off the ground because they weren't interested in how. They were interested, they were interested in when. I mean, when Tanqueray, when uh, the company had Bombay Sapphire, when they had to sell it off because of monopolies and mergers, the CEO called down and said, right, we need a new brand we needed to be on the market in three or four months. And it has to happen. And uh, Tanqueray 10 was, was, was what came out. So if, as soon as you deal with middle management, and it's hard for you people because you're all at the beginning of your careers, you, you get into a situation, they have to have assurance. They have to have six different pack designs and six different brand names. And it creates a massive kind of purple economy which is wasteful. Um, so try and avoid them if possible. <laughs> so leading on to the next question then is how do you get to that point where you can walk in and 
I suppose have a couple of successes fairly early. I mean, which is not that easy, you know, because it's a, very much a trial and error. You never know whether brands are going to be successful. I didn't know that Bailey's was going to be as big as it was. Otherwise, I would have got slightly more than you get uh, from Bailey's. At the moment, I get the same as you. Any other question? Uh, you said that uh, you're always looking for the best solution when it comes to all your designs. Um, was, was it always like a fourth or fifth type of design that you went with, or was it more often the first design that you initially went with? I don't think it, it, it worked like that. I think that um, if you and the client, the person you're working for, are on the same kind of wavelength, you know between you when an idea works and, 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 and you know, what it requires. I remember with Aqualibra was the brand that we developed in the 80s. And I sold it off the back of an envelope to a guy in two minutes because we both knew what the problem was. We'd been living with the problem for quite a long time. And we, uh, as soon as it came out, we both knew. I mean, it, the, the, this is not science. Um, there's no scientific proof here. Uh, it's down to two people's judgment. And I mean, we were right more often than we were wrong. I think I'd say in defense. Um, yes? I have one uh, question. The IQ, why did you just let it slip? Like, did you not, if it was a very good idea, which I think it is, why didn't you take it to someone else? I couldn't. I was on contract. Um, it it, it belonged to the client, yeah. I mean, you do it. Get, 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 get together a group of people. That, I wish somebody would do it because it's such a good idea. It doesn't belong to them because they let me write a book about it. If they felt, uh, I mean, that idea is about 20 years old. So it's not, it's not new. Oh, uh, so you couldn't do anything because you were tied to the company? Or? I was under contract, yeah. So I couldn't go and sell it to somebody else. I mean, it, it was their idea, but they were happy to. You can do it now, though. They're not interested in anymore. More questions? Uh, comment, criticism, argument? Yes. Why did you decide to launch your new brand product in December during the winter time? Which brand? Uh, the Cluis uh, one. We didn't launch it in the summer. We launched it in March. So I mean, when you started uh, your new brand, you wanted to launch your Well, in the drinks market, what you do with a brand is you introduce it in March in order that it peaks selling at, before Christmas. Because something like 80% of all drink is sold during de uh, November and December. So, but you have to build it up and establish its reputation. And you do that uh, in advance of that time. Mm. Uh, a moment of total lunacy. Has <laughs> <laughs> uh, there ever been a point in your career that you talked to shit on reading the government? I talked to what? Has there ever been a point in your career that you ever talked to yourself, I'm the shit, I'm really in the gutter now? Uh, probably. <laughs> oh, I'm certainly. I mean, you know, you, you, you can't solve every problem. You have to wake up one morning with an idea, but I'm an optimist. <laughs>
Yes. And um, was there any product? I know you have a sign up there saying believe in the products and stuff like that. Sorry, I can't hear you very well. I know you had a sign up there that said believe in your products. I don't know how important that is, you know, in getting behind something. Was the products that you worked on that you didn't believe in? No, not really. Not not after the first the first three or four years when you do this kind of thing, you don't know what you're doing, really. I remember the first brief I got was from Bird's Eye Foods, and we came up with 48 ideas. But we, did, you know, we didn't know what they wanted, and they didn't know what they wanted either. But if you, as you spend more time and you get more familiar with the category, uh, you become more confident at your output. And if you come up with one solution... Well, I never went to somebody with one solution uh, unless I was absolutely sure that it was the best I could do. And there's no such thing as the best there is. That's too optimistic. <coughs> I think it's it. David, I appreciate your time. And um, guys, thanks for coming and uh, asking the questions and hanging with David. Plenty of stuff about creating an innovative design that uh, his life experience is all about. As you probably know from the information that comes through here, and the externs that are actually in this exact room at the end of the year, they're always looking at trying to make sure the curriculum you're on leads you to have the wherewithal or the focus or the ability to make something, design something out of nothing. And uh, it's interesting for me to always to, to listen to someone like David Gluckman who's done that, you know, the wide open white piece of paper, make something happen hopefully a product that will sell or that will appeal to a lot of people as intriguing. Thanks, Dave, for the time. Really appreciate it's a pleasure. It. Thank you.